Chapter 3 Economic Specialization, Political Systems, and the Great Reset. In the last few episodes, we talked about money and its history, and we talked a bit about cryptocurrencies. And of course, we'll be getting more into them in future episodes. But now it's time to talk in depth about the world cryptos will be entering into, the modern economy. This post-COVID world will look a lot different than what went before it. Small businesses have collapsed in many industries. New industries will be formed as capital moves to where it is most efficient in the new economy. A great reset for the economy, if you want to call it that. This reset has arguably been needed for decades due to the vast mismanagement of both money and the economy since at least the 1980s. But we'll start talking in this episode about one vital economic principle, economic specialisation. If you remember back to the previous episodes, we highlighted the Mesopotamian civilization's use of money as perhaps the first civilization to use what we would recognize as real money. It started as societies in the Fertile Crescent became larger and larger and grew, and these towns grew into cities. At some point, the scholars of the day may have realized that economies were growing as more and more people were specializing in different areas of the economy. A group of experienced and skilled farmers managing lots of land could outproduce the same amount of subsistence farmers working on small plots of land. Therefore, it resulted in not everybody needing to be subsistence farmers. Those who didn't farm could do more valuable things with their time. Garment makers, for example, could specialise and make more garments and textiles and of better quality than those who didn't do it full-time, as their knowledge became more and more specialised in textiles and clothes manufacturing, because they didn't need to worry about getting food. However, there becomes an inherent flaw in this system without the use of money. How would you fairly transact the wheat you harvest for the clothes you need? Well, you need a medium of exchange. In the earliest of societies, they didn't have money and so relied on bartering goods. But soon, with large population growth, you would not know everybody in your town. A town of 30,000 people or so is far too large to know everybody. You couldn't track everything. Remember, These societies were still largely pre-writing, and indeed, the relationship between accountancy and writing is closely intertwined. Humans need wheat all year round, but might only need textiles now and again. But clothes are slightly more difficult for the masses to get than wheat, so you need the ability to better transact wheat for clothes. Soon, the ability to transact what you need and what you have becomes very difficult. 
you need a better system to account for the excess of resources and to ensure it's broadly fair for everybody. A system to show and to track who produced the more or the less valuable stuff in society was needed. If this medium of exchange is not standardised, it makes everything very hard to transact. You, for example, might think seashells are worth lots. But if the person you're transacting with can find them on a beach nearby, a couple of mile walks away, they'll know seashells aren't actually worth that much at all. It's not a fair exchange. Many people throughout history have been burned by trading like this. So what society needed was a solid medium of exchange that was also easy to transact. You also need to be able to hold onto this medium of exchange for future use. And that could be in a year or two. So if you would, say, accept apple and grapes for the clothes you make, they go off very quickly, and so you can't really store it. What would be good as a medium of exchange was something that rewards saving, but also rewards an even more productive use of the stored resources by being a good medium of exchange too. For those who stored apples, fish or even tulips, they would quickly realise that these things have immense deterioration in their store of value after only a couple of days or weeks. They are bad stores of value. So throughout history, humans have relied on nature to provide a good medium of exchange and a good store of value. Gold has been the classic. It is chemically inert, meaning it doesn't go off or even rust. It's shiny too, and we all love shiny things. Just ask anybody with Pokemon cards. Gold is a good store of excess resources. It's also difficult enough to mine to limit supply, but in small quantities, easy enough to give everybody across the village a bit of gold as payment. While its universal nature across the world means it's had value almost all across the world, while its mining too has historically been dispersed. Gold and his younger brother, Silver, which actually served more as a reserve currency historically than gold, can therefore be considered true hard money. They have held value for thousands of years. Government currencies are nowhere near that good at holding value. Not only do all government currencies see money printing resulting in inflation eating away at their value, but also the fact it's backed by governments means if the government's authority collapses, your store of value is likely to collapse too. Just look at the Roman Empire or the Confederate States in America. When they collapsed, their currencies became worthless, leading to an intense depression in Europe and the southern United States. Europe took a thousand years to get out of its depression, only rebouncing with the Renaissance. And it took, really, until air conditioning in the 1980s for a burgeoning economy in the South to grow once again. So how does economic specialisation cause wealth? Wealth creation is a topic in politics we hear a lot about. 
But what actually is it? Put simply, wealth is increased by increasing the specialization and efficiency of something. The more you specialize, in theory at least, the more you can produce for less, and the more efficient you are, you can then produce more and have to work less. Specialization and efficiency gains can be seen as mundanely as a local corner shop. If you open a food shop in a place with no food shops and save people a 15 minute car ride, the ability for people to get food becomes ever more efficient, saving the consumer plenty of time. While the reward for increasing the efficiency of the local economy, even to this degree, is profit. A Michelin starred chef is one of the most uniquely specialised jobs possible. They produce an utterly unique product and something you could never do yourself. And they know the value of their labour, hence why they're so expensive. While McDonald's is, at the same time, completely similar and the complete opposite. A Big Mac is something you might be able to make at home. But buying a Big Mac is far quicker and probably cheaper than you could ever make it, giving you an incentive to buy from McDonald's. What the Babylonians would have realised was essentially the same. There's no point in me learning to make clothes, because I can produce enough surplus of wheat so I can sell what I make and then buy what I can't make. You increase the specialisations in the economy. With this money you now have, you don't have to spend an entire day of labour making yourself a piece of cloth to wear. Indeed, you'd be a fool to waste your day making it, when, in time saved, you might as well buy it. We all notice this in our life. When I was a student, I would walk everywhere. I was cash poor, but time rich. I could waste two hours walking up to university and back, rather than getting the bus. Once I got a job, my job was either a two-hour walk away or a 30-minute tram journey. The economics of my decision became different. I had less free time but more money, so I got the tram. This is all down to the same principles of specialisations of labour. My labour paid me, and I worked hard for it, and created value for the boss of the pub I worked in. I then chose to use the fruits of my labour to spend my money on making my journey slightly quicker, saving me time. To achieve a good equilibrium in the economy of where specialisation needs to go requires sound money. Profit needs to go where people spend their money. Efficiency increases are the result of business competition trying to get you to spend your money with them because they want to make profit. A business can do this by making their products better or cheaper. This is the largest benefit of a fair medium of exchange. It causes the very nature of the economy to be more balanced. In Britain, it was the acknowledgement of this specialisation of labour that largely caused the Industrial Revolution. Previously, the largest leap in economic efficiency had been the Neolithic Revolution, where mankind was introduced to skills like farming. The Industrial Revolution 
now meant machines could provide huge efficiency boosts, requiring the capitalists not to need to spend as much on labour as before. We need to understand economic specialisations to understand the role of money. How money is earned is not quite as simple as you think, and has perplexed economists for decades. Simply working in any old job, I would argue, does not create wealth. It is only increasing economic specialisations and efficiency that produces wealth. This idea would negate the central argument of John Maynard Keynes, who argued simply jobs produce wealth. Anybody who works in the public sector can tell you how much the mindless bureaucracy actually inhibits efficiency rather than improves it. Government bureaucracy grows when money becomes more politically spent. Jobs are created in areas to support politics. The poorest areas in Britain have the highest levels of public spending, as the government attempts to solve market inefficiencies, not by solving any of the economic problems, but just by giving people public sector jobs. Government money alters the equilibriums of economies as poor areas are pumped up by governments allocating money, without much in return, inhibiting true natural economic development. This fine equilibrium of where money is spent is called money transfers. This is an important concept to remember for the rest of this chapter. Money transfers generally happen in five areas. Rents, wages, interest, profit and government money transfers like welfare payments. For a balanced equilibrium to occur between all five money transfers, you need to make sure one area isn't massively outspending the others. If government money is too involved in the economy, it disrupts the finely balanced equilibrium. Alas, in the third decade of the 21st century, wages have been kept low for years, while rents continue to rise. Interest rates since the 2008 financial crisis have collapsed too. Meanwhile, welfare payments have soared. Profits, however, well, that's an interesting one. For some companies, like Apple, profits are easy to come by. Almost too easy. And finding what to do with these easy profits has actually been a problem for Apple. Stories of Apple having more money than the US government are funny. But they hint at a problem. Apple can't find any use for the massive profits it's gained. It should be using and investing the money to fund new and radical research. But the lack of seemingly profitable, large-scale, long-term technological developments in society means that new consumer tech is still a long way off. That's why they keep coming back to the electric car. It's perhaps the only area that looks like they might get a return on large-scale investment. For some valuable companies like Uber and Airbnb and many other new internet-based firms, they hardly produce a profit, but are kept going through cheap debt with low interest rates, which has been funded by government money printing. 
This is hardly a balanced equilibrium. These imbalances in the economy have happened before, and it's always been down to the government entrenching poverty through artificially high prices. During the feudal era in Europe, rents were sky high and serfs had to pay their masters, not the market rate, but the prices their lords and masters told them. The serfs didn't really have a choice. That's why they were serfs. It took for the Black Death to wipe out 50% of the population for the imbalance to correct itself. By 1375, crop prices in England dropped massively due to the lack of eaters for the food, wiping out the population. With the already tight labour supply due to the high death rates, peasants for once had the economic advantage. Peasants could finally bargain better for their labour, and so negotiated terms far more favourable to themselves. The partial restoration of an equilibrium in these money transfers, with less going to rent and more to labour, enabled new freedoms for millions, something rarely seen before in human history. By 1500, the peasants were now just commoners. These new economic freedoms led to something of an economic and technological boom at the start of the early modern period, as Europe got out of its 1,000-year economic depression. The growth of a new middle class enabled people to invest time in themselves and in learning, which helped to unleash a scientific revolution. Esoteric knowledge spread and was quickly applied in more technical ways. The revolution that was the steam engine was just one example of the bringing together of scientific theories and applying them to the real world, as we talked about in my other podcast. The steam engine allowed for mechanisation and the production of more for less. The first industrial revolution grew from both the increasing freedoms in Europe, especially in England, and the increasing knowledge about the natural world, which led to more applied uses. The first industrial revolution from 1760 to 1840 ended with the railroad boom, as the natural culmination of all these new technologies came together to promote the railways. By the 1850s, there was a new revolution. The second industrial revolution came from the rise of steel, the telegraph, the internal combustion engine, larger cities leading to massive public health works, and eventually electricity and the telephone. The revolution ended, perhaps not with the First World War, but with the 1929 Wall Street crash, as the consumerism of the 1920s all ended. The 1920s consumerism was based on adding together and the results of the previous 60 or 70 years of technological output. But in 1929, it was quite quickly seen that there was little more technological progress, and the consumerism of the 20s was ending. Everybody had a telephone, a radio or a car, as the economy reached a state of overproduction. 
technological developments reached their logical maximum in the 1920s, and no more efficiency gains could be made. Excess capital in the United States began not to be spent on cars, but put into the stock market, where easy gains could be made, or so they thought. Once it was realised it was all speculation, the economy collapsed overnight. Massive amounts of excess capital in the economy was lost, and it caused a huge economic depression. It took until the 1950s for the American economy to recover from the collapse of the stock market. But recover it did. This recovery was in part a building up of industrial might that had happened during the war. And the position the United States found itself in after the war was as the world's foremost superpower. But then another revolution hit the United States. The digital revolution began in the 1950s. And in future, I think, it will probably be seen as ending with the 2020 coronavirus pandemic and lockdown. This revolution was the computer or digital revolution, as mechanisation no longer took place through factories and mass production, but the use of semiconductors and computer code, personal computing and the internet, then the smartphone and tablet coupled with developments in telecommunications like 3G and 4G, allowed for a revolution in information and communication. Like the railway boom of the 1840s, or the consumer goods boom of the 1920s in America, this economic cycle ended with a mass proliferation of consumer goods, like the ever cheaper smartphones that were released during the 2010s. This smartphone boom was the logical end of an industrial revolutionary cycle. Consumerism takes off when what had been learned over the past 50 years is basically all put into consumer technology, which precipitates a drive for this consumer tech to get ever cheaper. The third industrial revolution, however, is unique in that it took place all over the world, leading to different outcomes all over the world. Some areas, like personal transportation, didn't see much gains in this revolutionary cycle, as capital was pumped into the digital world and not the physical one. The high-speed train revolution, for example, only really took place in China and Japan. America and Europe skipped huge investments needed in rail and moved towards aeroplane transport, which, with the use of automation and highly efficient low-cost carriers, not to mention the mass production of aeroplanes, allowed for cheap air flight in Europe and America to reach the masses. Continental distances were now nothing more than a minor convenience, not the trip of a lifetime. These industrial developments in automation began in 1760, and was nothing short of the biggest revolution in human history for 10,000 years, and one we're still dealing with today. Humans have gone from pre-steam to the vast majority of the world now being industrialised. Industrialisation spread from Britain to Europe and America, 
then to parts of South America, Australia, the Middle East, and much of Asia. With more wealth created in the past 20 years than at any other point in human history. Yet, 2020 sees the end of the digital revolution. As we approach either the next industrial revolutionary cycle or economic stagnation. The World Economic Forum's Klaus Schwab's fourth industrial revolution is approaching. Whether you want it or not, it is coming. The British government have even published a guide on their website to regulate the fourth industrial revolution. While Prime Minister Boris Johnson has spoken about the prospect of a new industrial revolution, Schwab has become something of an internet hate figure for his views on how the fourth industrial revolution should look. Our end of the revolutionary cycle means that like the 1920s, consumerism has powered the economy for much of the past 10 years or so. But this cannot go on forever. New, more primary technologies are needed to keep the rate of growth high. Better economic efficiency is needed to keep a constant economic growth model based on debt going. Schwab's Great Reset is no conspiracy. It's merely the product of a group of technocrats in Davos seeing how technological progress has slowed down over the past few years and looking towards what is needed to continue the perpetual growth model based on debt. The answer they, as I, have come to is that technological progress is needed. The world's economic system is based on debt and constant growth, but will fail when constant growth falls down, leading to a proliferation of debt. Capital has been invested poorly over the last 10 to 20 years, and technological progress has therefore suffered. Excess capital has been poured into marginally profitable and easily scalable consumerism. Dozens of half-empty coffee chain shops and restaurants on every street corner and economies based on app services all promote consumerism, but it also promotes competition in areas that will never and are not hugely profitable. The barriers to entry are too low. Meanwhile, the corporations that do actually control large-scale investments like banks and big tech have far too high barriers of entry to create competition. But these large corporations haven't invested their profits well. For many small and medium-sized businesses, low profit margins throughout much of the Western world have remained since the 2008 financial crisis. The short-termism of largely American private enterprise and lending has pushed money into overpriced stocks, housing and tech apps. America today has elements of Britain's late Victorian era, where there didn't seem to be an appetite for renewed investment in a second technological revolution, preferring a slow gliding decline as Britain ceded much industrial might to Germany and America. Much of the lack of investment in America from the capital base of the world 
That's because capital has not been invested at home, but gone all over the world. The British, 200 years before, had used their imperial and financial might to essentially buy India through bribery and cunning. For those British public schoolboys who took over India and funnelled profits from Britain into cementing their power abroad, they must have felt on top of the world. But the enterprise did little good for either Britain or the British Empire. American globalisation too is starting to see its limits. Rather than investing in new technology that would result in perpetual growth and innovation, America's development has slowed, as expansionism abroad, both militarily and economically, has allowed the world to catch up. Klaus Schwab is probably right, there is a need for renewed technological development, and a need for new technologies to increase economic efficiency and specialisation. But the reason he's such a hate figure is that his thesis is quite scary. It is entirely top-down in its approach. It is all about the World Economic Forum's idea of how the world should look, and the World Economic Forum's constituent members. They want to maintain their power through a new technological revolution, rather than a new technological revolution coming from the bottom up to benefit everybody. There is no reason society has to be like this. The Third Industrial Revolution allowed for peer-to-peer communication, the likes of which have never been seen before, or even thought of, really. There is hardly a work of science fiction before the 1980s or 1990s with anything related to the internet. The internet was truly unique and revolutionary, and still little explored as to its theoretical maximum. In my other podcast, I relate this to the development of LSD, allowing a generation of hippies on the West Coast to think completely differently two ways before. The internet allowed and encouraged technology in society to become increasingly bottom-up. The fourth industrial revolution should be the opportunity for the coming technological developments to encourage the spread of capital and a sounder monetary order. This new society Schwab and the Davos crowd advocate for in their blueprints may have some good points. But it misses one crucial aspect. The one aspect most ordinary people care about. The Davos crowd have no regard or interest in individual liberty. They're only concerned with their own oligarchical power. Things like property rights to the oligarchs in control of the economy are merely an annoyance rather than the foundation of society. Property rights, which date back to Moses receiving the Ten Commandments, became entrenched in all prosperous societies. Mosaic law became Jewish law, which became Judeo-Christian law, and subsequently entrenched into the ethos of common law and civil law across the world. Thou shalt not steal comes to us all the way through Israel, Egypt, and then to Greece, to Rome, to Britain, and then to America. The entrenchment of property rights should be the drive of the fourth industrial revolution. And, as we go on later, we'll see how the blockchain could be the precursor of this. Schwab 
and the World Economics Forum's slogan, quote, you don't own anything, close quotes, is the antithesis to libertarian and individualistic principles. Ownership won't be forgotten entirely, for the very rich at least. You can bet the rich will own and buy what they want, as the rest of us rent. Almost everybody in the world will still want to own what they buy. And sure, streaming Spotify and Netflix will still be fine. But many will want to buy and own things too, and not to pay continuous rents like a tenant surf. Cryptos and the blockchain are the alternatives, and in my mind, the only alternatives to the slightly scary dystopian roller coaster we seem to be riding. Imagine a crypto world. You could pay for a Spotify subscription that allows you to buy pretty much any song you want. You hear an album on Spotify and fall in love with it. You then buy the album outright, either digitally or on, say, vinyl. You pay for the vinyl with a cryptocurrency, which also, with a bit of clever programming you don't need to worry about, allows you to sign a smart contract that digitally ties either that music file or physical vinyl to you personally, making you the sole and universally recognised owner of that file or that vinyl. There might only be 1,000 vinyls or a million digital copies of the album first produced, but you will own it. If you don't own things, you don't have economic power. Property wealth is the root of all human stability, permanence and prosperity. The blockchain will allow for everything to turn into property. The World Economic Forum's future is glorified serfdom. If you don't own anything, it allows you to be controlled, at least implicitly, by those who do own things. The political system will be altered away from a democracy and towards oligarchy, where the country is run by elites for elites. Political systems, we should remember, have always been mixed. And a sort of oligarchic democracy is not impossible to conceive. Greek philosopher Plato talked about this mix of political regimes some 2,500 years ago when discussing political systems in his famous Republic. Four of the types of political regimes he talks about will be recognisable to you in an instant. But it is the fifth and least recognised political system that is of most interest to me. No political system is entirely pure, and most are hybrids. And to some extent, they are a mix of at least two of the five political systems listed by Plato. Aristocracy, the rule of the benevolent. Oligarchy, the rule of the few. Tyranny, the rule of the one. Democracy, the rule of the many. And timocracy, the rule of landowners. You can see many of these types of regimes all over the world. North Korea today is the classic tyranny. Russia, the classic oligarchy. But democracies are often mixed with other elements to make them more stable and to avoid mob rule. Pure democracy in the style of Switzerland is rare. Britain 
could be seen as a mix of most of the types of political systems at the same time. As a property-owning democracy, Britain has the rule of landowners, a democracy. With free and fair elections, it has the rule of the many. With its strong class structures and stratified wealth holdings, it has a mix also of aristocratic and oligarchic tendencies. That the World Economic Forum, Schwab, and the Davos crowd view the priorities of the world differently to me and you is not a surprise. And indeed, it would be odd if Jeff Bezos viewed the world similarly to me and you. But it should be also no surprise that they view their power as the most important thing, and they want to entrench it and keep power concentrated by themselves, rather than give it back to ordinary people. When power is unchecked, it always moves up the chain, as those in power try to get ever more of it. This trend was noted by sociologist Robert Mickles in 1915. Mickles argues that power naturally ends up conglomerating into forms of oligarchy, and that it is incredibly difficult to stop. Any social organisation where power rests will form into oligarchy, as Mickle's theory goes. Think about where you work, or any other social organisation you are a part of. There is always an in and an out group, wherever power is located. The in group only allow those with similar precepts to themselves to join the in group, making it incredibly difficult to break oligarchies. Today, we see globalisation resulting in a very wealthy group of oligarchs trying to control the world's economy, which has resulted in the slow intermingling of politics and business around the world. In political terms, many libertarians argue that to hold back the tides of oligarchy, democracy should be broadly mixed with a democracy. A property-owning democracy is the best halt on the centralisation of power. A rich property-owning democracy will have more stability and therefore power to rise up and thwart democracy from sliding into light oligarchy. The property-owning are independently wealthy and don't need to always follow the government line and therefore have more clout and influence over their government, in which to stop oligarchy occurring. Britain and America, as the classic property-owning democracies, historically have used this to great effect to stop any real change into their political systems becoming really oligarchical or tyrannical, so far at least. A strict democratic democracy is therefore the libertarian's answer to stop the rise of oligarchy, which, we should remember, is naturally occurring in human society. However, Swab's and the World Economic Forum's plans would lead much of the West into oligarchy. Strengthening property rights through things like the blockchain and cryptocurrencies will allow the average person more personal wealth and therefore security in life.
This security in life allows more ability to control your life. In effect, you will be happier and wealthier. You will have a greater stake in society and therefore more power to influence it. When this is magnified through millions and millions of people in a country, people power is far more powerful than any government power, which stops oligarchy occurring. This is what the prospect of a monetary revolution on the eve of the coming fourth industrial revolution will do. It should not only be a technological revolution, but a revolution in individual liberty. A sovereign citizen. The impact of sound money and property rights will allow bottom-up free market capitalism to rebound. Because that's how democratic capitalism should work. Once sound money and property rights are secure, equilibriums in the economy will naturally righten. The economy will grow naturally once again, allowing ever-increasing economic specialisation to be rewarded, and creating positive feedback loops all across the economy. Adam Smith's revolutionary work, The Wealth of Nations, first published in 1776, was right at the beginning of the first industrial revolution. It argued for increased specialisation and work resulting in wealth, and as automation began to eat away at the need for subsistence living, this was a key insight. Rather than having to make everything you need yourself, you need to only be able to do one or two things well to survive. You can specialise your knowledge. Of course, we should remember there can be a downside to over-specialisation, where you only know literally one thing and nothing else. A problem, I think, with much of academia. But that's a story for another day. Adam Smith was famous for arguing that in a capitalist economy, you do need competition. Competition in a free market allows for the best to beat the rest, in order for you to sell your labour or your products. It's a very simple and easy thing to understand. This competition is normally on either cost or quality. Any cheap old watch can tell the time, but people still buy Rolexes. If you can't compete on cost or quality, you've got to find a different way of giving it value, either through design or marketing. If you don't do this, your business will get eaten up and you won't be able to survive. Smith talked about supply and demand, which is a concept that overly confuses lots of people. Supply and demand is simply a mechanism to judge the best way to allocate resources. Rather than a government deciding where the economy should go, supply and demand will naturally let resources allocate themselves to where there is a demand for them. If Apple brings out a new product and suddenly the entire world buys it, there is a clear demand for this product and it will show the markets this is a new highly prized area and it will demand innovation from Samsung or Huawei, whoever. Old-style competitors, like Nokia or BlackBerry, have not competed and therefore have died. Capitalism is brutal but effective.
capitalism works, but true productive capitalism can be damaged if the equilibriums in money transfers are manipulated. The state is notably poor at allocating resources. The most obvious example of this was the Soviet Union, which industrialised rapidly, but when it was getting close to catching up, its awfully poor allocation of resources meant that it carried on supporting dying industries long after demand had dried up. The Soviet Union never gave people the freedom to innovate in something like a digital revolution. The Soviet Union may have been able to produce half-decent televisions or cars for its people, but because it was so poor at allocating resources, the actual quality of its products was still far worse than the Americans. Today, just think of American buildings compared to Soviet architecture to see the difference. The Soviet government's control of money and resources, compared to the far freer Americans, meant supply and demand just didn't work in the same way. America, with a freer economy, enabled it to innovate in areas which would never have been state-sponsored. Inventions and ideas could exist in America that never existed in the Soviet Union. America had a pop music revolution, a booming film industry, and great television shows, while the command economy of the Soviet Union propped up things like the Russian ballet and orchestras while persecuting writers like Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Today, the West still isn't quite bad as the Soviet Union in controlling the economy, but it still controls too much of our lives. Tax rates and house prices are too high for medium-income earners to get any real chance of wealth. Interest rates are too low, not encouraging saving, while benefiting spending. The end of the current industrial revolutionary cycle means growth and therefore productivity gains are low. An economy that supports spending and consumption, but not investment and saving, is not a healthy economy. There are many reasons why Western economies have stopped being good at allocating resources, but the removal of sound money is perhaps the overriding reason. As we've mentioned in this chapter, currency debasement is happening before our eyes and impacting first the poorest who rely on wages, and then the middle class savers whose wealth is increasingly slipping away as inflation eats away at their savings and the purchasing power of their wages. So, whether leaving the gold standard was a good thing is for another day. But what is clear is what government money is doing. It's showing its age. Capitalism is just best left to rip. Money has been manipulated for so long that through poor short-term investment, it has devastated the prospects of the young and many who are now approaching middle age. For increasing numbers, the move to Bitcoin is because, well, what else have we got to lose? There is hardly any good economic prospects out there by following the rules. Stocks are overvalued. Housing is too expensive. In some ways, Bitcoin is our only hope. Cryptos offer the chance to restore the equilibrium of sound money and reinforce and support basic, productive, individualistic capitalism. So, thanks for listening to that episode. If you liked it, 
feel free to give a star rating or leave a comment. Or perhaps you want to explore my other podcast, 100 Greatest Inventions. In the next episode, we're going to start looking at inflation, but more interestingly, deflation. Deflation.